Hi, I'm your host, Dave Kemp, and this is Future Ear Radio. Each episode, we're breaking down one new thing, one cool new finding that's happening in the world of hearables, the world of voice technology. How are these worlds starting to intersect? How are these worlds starting to collide? What cool things are going to come from this intersection of technology? Without further ado, let's get on with the show. All right. So we are joined here today by one of the most reoccurring guests. I think you're right up there with Andy Bellavia now, uh, Ryan Crodel. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Dave, thanks a lot for having me. It's great to be back and uh, an honor to be in such good company of reoccurring guests. <laughs> Absolutely. So real quick, for those that don't know who you are, um, can you give us a quick background on who you are, Valencell, just your background? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I head up marketing for a company called Valencell. We make the biometric sensor technology that goes into wearable devices of all kinds. So the easy way to think about it is the green blinking lights on the back of a smartwatch or a fitness band, or in some cases, red blinking lights, which we'll get into more uh, in this conversation. Uh, Everything from smartwatches to fitness bands, uh, earbuds, even hearing aids and other health and medical devices as well. So we build the sensor technology and do all of the advanced R&D and tech development. And we provide that technology to the device makers help them integrate in that, that technology into whatever device they're building and, um, and then uh, let them go to market with a successful product. Awesome. Yeah. So, you know, I look at you as like, you're the guy that I always go to when I have questions around biometric sensors. And, you know, when I think about the evolution of uh, hearables and wearables in general, I I always come back to this idea that um, health is going to play such a critical role. And, you know, kind of at the root of that movement are the sensors that um, are being deployed to capture those different metrics. So Valencell, you know, is a company that actually makes these things. And Ryan's been working there for quite some time. So, He's very, very knowledgeable about this. And so when the news broke last week about the Apple Watch Series 6 and the new, um, you know, basically the blood oxygen sensors, uh, you know, that are going to be embedded inside of the new Apple Watch, I immediately went to Ryan. I was like, can we get on the podcast and and go through what this means? Because again, um, I just think this is a super interesting path. And, and before we really even kick things off, I wanted to read a quote um, from a article that Horace Dadu wrote. So people that are familiar with Horace, he's at Asimico on Twitter. He's just a really, really knowledgeable uh, Apple analyst. And I think that a lot of what he says really resonates. And and I think what this piece that he recently wrote, I thought would be a really good way to kick things off for this whole conversation today. So basically in this piece, I won't read the whole thing, but he's outlining all these different things that the Apple watch can do, right? Um, the watch can track all physical activity and provide motivational reminders to meet daily goals. The watch can monitor exercise with precision and provide data that helps you improve your performance. Uh, the watch can also be used to pay for your groceries at the register. Um, you know, the, and, and so he goes on and on and he's just talking about all these different things that the watch can do. And he says, the reason the watch can do all these things is because it's a computer. It's a computer with a dual core processor based on the A13 Bionic chip also used in the iPhone 11, blah, 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 blah. 
But although being a computer allows the watch to do all this and more, no PC can do even one of these things, nor does a PC have GPS or cellular connectivity or NFC and is certainly not swim proof. Um, and so I thought like, this is so interesting because when we think about the computerization of wearables, right? And like this idea of body worn computers for the, like the first generation, they were pretty pedestrian in what they could do because there wasn't a whole lot of unique things that they can do. But as they've graduated into being more sophisticated in the sensors that they have embedded in them, they're starting to tackle use cases that no other type of device can really do. And, and I think that the main use case that all of these kind of revolve around, particularly when it comes to wrist-worn wearables, is health. And clearly, this is the position that Apple's taking. So let's just start right there. Yeah, it's, um, well, very clearly at a, at a macro level, there's this convergence going on of consumer wearable devices and traditional health and medical devices. And uh, Apple and others are certainly leading the charge from the consumer side of things in becoming personal health devices, if not outright medical devices. And the, the latest instantiation of the, the Apple Watch is uh, just takes it further down that path um, for the, the Apple ecosystem. And um, I thought that the way, it, you know, obviously Apple is extremely good at marketing and it, they're, the way they position their products and, its, and the capabilities are, are really telling, mainly because of uh, not just where they focus, but also what they don't say. And if you look at the promo video around the latest version of the Apple Watch, it's the, the future of health is on your wrist. And that's the, the future of health is um, really, I think, um, succinctly summarizes Apple's vision for this market and, and where they are focusing their, their product and their business strategy. And, um, and this, the, the latest version, the Apple Watch with the, the pulse oximetry capability is certainly uh, taking it further down that path. Yeah. And I think like, uh, I go back to, I think it was Jeff Williams, um, was talking on stage. I think it was when they introduced the ECG monitor and I always cite this, uh, you know, quote, but it's, he referred to him as an intelligent guardian of health. Um, and I think that's when they really understood that that's where the Apple watch's niche really resided was, uh, you know, in health. And, and so it's not surprising to me that they've sort of continued to just kind of double down on that. And now, like you said, the whole promotion video is, it's like almost entirely about health. It's about fitness. It's about wellness. Um, so let's, let's just start to get into this um, blood oxygenation and the pulse oximeter. Let's start with the pulse oximeter. Can you give us the science behind why this thing works? Like you, you mentioned at the top, of, uh, if you have an Apple Watch, you've probably noticed before that it emits a green light, right? Like that's the PPG sensor that's emitting that. So that's green. Why is this pulse, pulse oximeter red? How are these things going to kind of like work in tandem? Uh, just really curious to learn the whole science behind this. Sure. So... Um, yeah, so PPG sensors have become the dominant sensor technology in wearable devices, primarily because of their ability to measure a variety of different biometric 
signals and indicators through one, one body location, one sensor technology. And the vast majority of, of PPG sensors in the market today uh, are using green or some, some wavelength right around the, the green area to measure heart rate and heart rate variability and, and other biometrics. Um, what's different about SpO2 is, uh, well, there, there's a few things, but let's start with what is SpO2. And that's um, what SpO2 is measuring is, and most people think about it as, or describe it as blood oxygenation. And that's, that's an accurate description. It's actually, SpO2 is a measure of the percentage of hemoglobin or the red blood cells in the blood that are carrying oxygen. And for most healthy people, that's somewhere in the 95 to 99% of those uh, red blood cells are carrying oxygen. That's, that's a normal reading and the vast majority of people and readings you'll see on a pulse oximeter will come into that range. Um, what is important about that is that um, it, uh, it, it provides some early indications of when there are uh, issues with oxygenation in the blood. So obviously the, it, your, your blood needs to get perfused throughout the body. So different organs and tissues uh, can use that oxygen from the blood in order to um, generate energy and, and uh, the other bodily functions that, that are necessary. And so what this is doing is measuring that, uh, measuring that oxygenation in a very similar to way, way to the way uh, it measures heart rate. But the reason it's using red and actually what you don't see is it also uses infrared. Every, every SpO2 uh, sensor uses both red and infrared. And that is a way, it's a mechanism to uh, measure the, um, the oxygenation in the blood based on the different absorption patterns because um, uh, the oxygenated blood uh, absorbs light in different ways than deoxygenated blood. So a blood that's already um, uh, either has not picked up an oxygen or has already dumped its oxygen where it needs to go. And so the difference, the different absorption patterns between the red and infrared signals give you uh, a, a, an indication of uh, that blood oxygenation that, that can then be turned into a percentage of, through algorithms, can be turned into a percentage of hemoglobin uh, that's, that's actually carrying oxygen. Um, and so that, um, that's essentially what's going on there. The, the interesting thing and the reason this has been able to be added to wearable devices now, first of all, this, is, this has been around for many, many decades and goes Oh, uh, did you, was there? No, was I was just saying, yeah, there, like, no, I'm saying pulse, like for the, yeah, like the, the finger clips. Yeah, exactly. Where, um, where, and the, they're still used in hospitals and healthcare facilities. Um, but that, that technology goes way back. Actually, it originated in the, I believe in the forties. Um, but for the first, um, uh, large scale commercializations were in the late seventies and early eighties. And, and later into the 80s, it became the standard of care in hospitals and healthcare facilities. And, um, but what's different is those finger clips and the earlobe clips that they're using what's known as transmissive uh, PPG sensors. So transmissive being, it shines light all the way through the body. So in those finger clips, there's, um, there's a, a, an emitter on one side and a detector on the other side of your finger. 
And so it's go that light, both red and infrared is going all the way through your finger to the detector on the other side. That's not how wearable devices work and have, and it's been challenging to use um, or put these in wearable devices, SpO2 sensors in wearable devices, mainly because um, of the way, so most wearable devices are on the wrist or on the body, or in some cases in the ear. Um, but the, the transmissive nature of the previous generations of that technology are challenging because it, the, the light trying to go all the way through the wrist versus all the way through the finger just doesn't work. But at the same time, you need that, you need the red and infrared signals to be reflected back. And most of the wearables today, most of the green light uh, PPG sensors in those wearables are using reflective PPG, not transmissive PPG. So it's measuring how much light is actually reflected back based on the capillary blood flow. So the challenge has been, okay, how do you, and, and red and infrared light um, penetrate human tissue much, much further than the, the shorter wavelengths in the, the, the greens and blues. And so the problem is that light shines too far into your wrist. And the problem has been, it shines too far. And so uh, through different techniques, both from a hardware and a, an algorithm standpoint, and of course adding machine learning and, um, and AI techniques to that data, uh, we've been able to um, use that same uh, technology in red and infrared channels on a, using more of a reflective mode as opposed to a transmissive mode in a device that's worn on the wrist. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And it's, I just find this to be such a modern marvel. Like we don't appreciate these things. I don't think as much as maybe, you know, we take it for granted. It's just, it's amazing to me that like you've mentioned it before in the podcast, but a big reason behind all this is the data science. Like it's the machine learning algorithms. It's the ability to take this data that previously had just maybe been incomprehensible, um, you know, to, to anybody that's looking at it, they don't know what they're looking at, but when you feed it through these sophisticated algorithms, so there's been massive leaps on the data science side. Um, and then I think this is just so fascinating that like, I never knew, you know, the finger pulse oximeter, like what, what that thing's doing. I would bet the majority of people that are listening to this right now have worn one of those at some point of their life and couldn't tell you what exactly was going on there. They just know that it's detecting this and it's reading the, the saturation of the, the actual cells in your body using lasers. And the fact that now you have these reflexive lasers it's just unbelievable to me. And again, I think that's that sort of speaks though to the significance of these wearables is that we on the surface look at these as like, this is a cool, like kind of like a neat watch that can do all these different things. But when you really kind of start to break down like how it's uh, it's doing all these things, it's, it's truly remarkable. And it's going to lead to some really fascinating use cases. And I think that one of the things about Apple that they do really well is they they really sort of, they have like, particularly with the wearables, they have these marketing messages and they're positioning it largely around fitness, right? Like there's plenty of disclaimers that say with the ECG monitor and with the, now the pulse oximeter, these are not intended for medical use. You know, these are not intended to be a replacement. Um, 
And so they, and they come at them with these applications that are largely around fitness and, you know, having like these uh, training and, and, and these like for high intensity, like types of workouts and stuff like that. But I think that as you can probably attest, there's some really interesting medical applications that can be gleaned from this as well. And again, it's always going to be framed under this guise of this is not intended to be a medical device. Like they're not FDA grade one medical devices. And there's a lot of regulatory implication implications that stem from that. But we've talked about this before where it's like, even just being able, like if it relates to COVID, for example, like when we did the podcast with Andy and, and we had uh, Chris Economos on, you know, just even like this pilot light idea where it's like, you might have something going on like these this myriad of sensors and the metrics that it's capturing in, in combination, they're kind of, you know, regurgitating out this result that is like pilot light is on, you need to go see a doctor. And that to me is what's so exciting about this is even just directionally being able to see, I might have something going on that's funky. Um, whether it be AFib with, you know, the ECG monitor being able to detect abnormalities in my heartbeat or with this, you know, blood oxygenation, I'm about to go to bed and I have real, real low levels of blood oxygen. Um, and, and so I think that's where this is all starting to get really interesting is that it's this idea of transforming the wearable into a true intelligently intelligent guardian of health, preventative health tool, whatever you want to describe it as, but the more layers of complexity in terms of what you're capturing and in combination, you know, with what you can glean from those insights in aggregate, that's to me where this is all getting really, really interesting. Yeah. And there, there's a lot to, a lot to unpack there that triggered a bunch of thoughts. Um, but so we've talked about sensor fusion before, and this is, um, this is another example of that. We're now in, a single wearable device. And and by the way, Apple, the Apple Watch is not the only one. There are devices from Garmin and Fitbit and Withings sure. and Amazfit and others mm -hmm. that have all, and Whoop too, but that have all of this um, sensor technology as well. Um, but this is a good example of how you can start to triangulate um, an individual's personal baseline in understanding what their, what their average uh, blood oxygenation levels are what their ECG looks like, what their resting heart rate looks like, what their activity levels are, all of these things. And to your point earlier, the, the all in a body-worn device that is now a computer on your wrist or in your ear or on your arm, wherever it might be, that um, has all of those capabilities to, to be able to establish that personal baseline. Um, and I think that's critical, and we'll we'll come come back around to that in a moment. But I want to I don't want to lose a point you mentioned earlier, or, or a, a topic you touched on earlier, which is the the whole um, uh, medical grade and regulatory aspects of what they announced specifically around SPO two, because SPO two in a in a regulatory environment is interesting. It's it's one of the um, one of the few areas that the FDA has determined that they're it can be used for both general wellness and for clinical applications. So some SpO2 monitors are FDA 510K cleared. Others are used for just general wellness. And 
all of the consumer wearable devices, Apple, Garmin, Fitbit, all the, the ones that have SpO2 capabilities today, and some of the pulse ox clips even are, are not FDA cleared just for general wellness purposes. Um, and, but uh, the, pull, the finger clips from companies like Nanen and, um, and others are, um, and Massimo is another big one. Uh, those are all FDA cleared 510K devices that are primarily used in, um, in hospitals and healthcare facilities and surgery centers to track uh, pulse ox under, under anesthesia, that kind of stuff. But it was interesting to me that Apple chose not to go down the, the 510K clearance path in the case of SpO2, whereas they did with ECG. And so it, that tells you a lot. But what they, if you looked at the announcement, it was where it is not FDA clear that SpO2 is, is general wellness, but we've announced three different partnerships with medical research right. institutions to study the efficacy of this technology in this watch in uh, certain use cases. So they've essentially gone, I won't say they've gone around the FDA, but in this case, they've said, this is a general wellness device, mm -hmm. but we're partnering with these medical research institutions to demonstrate the efficacy of the technology in medical use cases. And so that um, they're, that I thought was brilliant um, uh, in looking at, um, using a general wellness device for uh, demonstrating true clinical outcomes. And, um, and uh, I'm excited to see how those, those turn out and uh, with other devices, not just Apple devices in the market as well, because you're starting to see more and more of this where consumer general wellness devices are working with, uh, with medical research institutions yep. to demonstrate the, the capabilities and the efficacy of the outcomes that, that these devices can, can uh, help accomplish. And, and, and before you lose your train of thought, because I want you to continue on with what you're saying, but I just want to interject really quickly because I think it's a, it's a point worth making, which is that I know that I can be a bit of an Apple fanboy sometimes, and sometimes you got to give credit where credit's due. This is extremely important that Apple developed research kit because by doing so, they now have this amazing sort of like conduit into different research facilities, whether it be universities or uh, all these different like medical facilities. And they can, just like you said, they can kind of skirt the FDA in a way where they can go and they can say, well, this is a consumer grade device. And we're going to work with all these universities through research kit, which is basically their API that they can feed all this data in such a way. And they can basically legitimize their device through those studies. I just want to point that out because it, it is something that only Apple would, is doing. And it's something that you're seeing the fruits of, of a kind of a more obscure, you know, kit um, that I, I think the one of the primary reasons behind research kit is so that they can kind of further legitimize the medical applications of their wearables. Yeah. Oh, oh absolutely. And that's um, one of the biggest barriers to um, adoption of wearables as a, as um, medical devices or within the, the daily standard of care for medical practitioners is the the demonstrated evidence and and peer-reviewed science around 
the outcomes that these wearables can, can help deliver. And that's what Apple and others are doing now is taking these devices, putting them into clinical trials and research studies and, uh, and just getting, uh, getting them deployed widely out in the field where uh, they can uh, do their own research on how these, how these devices are, are actually being used uh, around uh, activities of daily living with people who, um, who have different um, health issues they're dealing with and how these, these devices can surface insights around those health issues as an early warning sign to, to be able to help them get care uh, more quickly and, and hopefully more effectively to be able to, to head off a, a, a potentially dangerous disease or, or health condition before it gets past the point of no return. So let's get in a little bit about what we can actually glean from these metrics. Um, I know blood oxygenation, there's also some different implications I think this has with VO2 max. Um, so can you speak to, from a fitness standpoint, what we might be able to, you know, like what kinds of things you can learn from this and how that's relevant to athletes all the way down to just people that are wearing the watch and not super active. And then I want to get into what are some of the different potential medical applications that you can glean from say medical grade pulse oximeters, um, I'm curious to just kind of break down some of the different things that you can garner from this. Yeah. So um, let's stick with SpO2 for, for a moment. Most of that, so I mentioned the clinical uses mostly in, in surgery and tracking oxygenation under anesthesia so they can titrate the dosages of the anesthesia or the ventilator or whatever it might be. That's more in, in clinical uh, applications. In the, the consumer general wellness applications, the not for medical use applications, most of that is around um, respiratory conditions. So things like asthma and COPD, you'll see um, uh, a lot of um, asthma and COPD patients carrying around uh, pulse ox, uh, the pulse ox clips to um, try to uh, head off uh, or, or get an early warning sign of uh, an asthma attack or a COPD complication. Um, another big area is around um, sleep apnea. So with sleep apnea, that's, um, it, you, you see severe drops in blood oxygenation because you literally stop breathing and as part of, uh, that's the, the condition of sleep apnea. So that obviously drops your, your blood oxygenation. And so this is, again, a, a way to, to see early warning signs of uh, sleep apnea that, that can lead to some, some much more serious health conditions. Um, and then, of course, in the in the context of this pandemic environment we're in now, there's um, there's the use of of uh, SpO2 monitors as again an early warning sign for um, uh, for respiratory conditions, whether it's pneumonia or flu or something uh, more severe like a, like uh, COVID, um, to be able to to um, uh, see some indications where a lot of people, particularly with COVID. Don't show uh, any um, any symptoms or any signs, or if they are, they're they're very mild. But um, when you look more deeply and have the ability to look look more deeply with a with something you're wearing on your wrist anyway, um, that can give you um, some of those early warning signs that 
um, that can indicate something is going on. And again, back to that, back to that personal baseline there, when there's a deviation from that baseline, you may not know exactly what it is and the watch or the wearable or the hearable is, is at least for the foreseeable future, not going to be able to diagnose what's going on, but they can at least provide a warning signal to say, Hey, you need to check into this because this is a, a deviation from your baseline that indicates something is going on. So look deeper, figure out what it, um, what's going on here. And then, um, and, and then uh, take action to avoid that. Uh, the, the capability around uh, atrial fibrillation and arrhythmias mm -hmm. with, that's been around now for a few years with wearable devices is a good example of that, where um, the watches use or the, the wearables use the PPG sensor to, to track irregular heart rhythms and then trigger someone to take an ECG reading to get a, a, a higher acuity reading of what's actually going on, whether that's through the device or at their doctor's office. Yeah. And I should say too, like one interesting thing, you know, using the heart rate monitor on the watch and juxtaposing it with the pulse oximeter now is that with the heart rate monitor, just like you said, um, in order to perform an ECG on your watch, you actually have to manually do it. But with the heart rate monitor always sort of being active, um, you will get a notification if you're sitting and your heart rate spikes for a unknown reason. Um, and what's interesting about this is that it's kind of the same thing that, um, and again, it's kind of a testament to how amazing some of these wearables are. It's going to maintain the same battery life. You have all these new sensors embedded and it's going to uh, be able to um, periodically issue the blood oxygen readings. And so more times than not, it will probably be in the background and you won't even notice it, but it will be logged in your health app. So you will be able to actually have a log of data. Um, but I think that where this gets interesting is, um, you know, with the heart rate kind of being like this, uh, you know, method to maybe detect AFib, you know, it, it should be noted that along with the blood oxygenation with this new watch, another big theme was sleep tracking. Mm -hmm. And so it would seem like sleep apnea could be the big kind of whale that this is going after um, is, you know, if you're going to be wearing this at night, might be a really good way to detect if you have sleep apnea. And that again, that's what I think is like, that's why I commend Apple with all this stuff is that they're yet they're leveraging their scale in ways that you, the, the, the reason that you're probably wearing your Apple watch isn't to detect AFib, right? The reason you're wearing it is because you like having this gadget. Now, some people might be actually looking out for different problems, but I think a lot of the people that catch these things are, they're like wearing them and just by happen chance through the, just the like law of numbers and the law of scale, um, the, you know, you're going to get, get some people in there that are like suddenly recognizing this. And then it becomes a recognized use case of the device where people say, hold on, this is actually a really good way to potentially catch some of these underlying issues that I otherwise wouldn't know about. And I think sleep apnea is going to be the next one that we'll see a whole lot of different stories written about, about people detecting it through the pulse oximeter that's being, you know, that's periodically running as you sleep at night. Yeah. And that's, that's a good example of, um, and a lot of wearable devices makers do this is they'll add sensor technology to the devices without actually announcing some of the capabilities. So Fitbit's a good example. They've had SPO2 
sensors in their devices for several years now, if not longer. And, um, but they didn't announce the SPO2 capability um, because what they were doing is getting these devices scaled out into a large percentage of their users and then doing it, using those devices as data collection endpoints to then advance their algorithms so they could then later announce the, the SPO2 capability. And you saw with, um, I think they just announced it recently as well. And they announced that several previous versions or existing uh, devices in the market could now do SPO2 because the, the hardware was already there. They're just, they, okay. at that point, it's a, it's a software update. Yeah. And so you're, you mentioned sleep and, um, and as it relates to the Apple Watch, I thought what um, one of the things they, the, the things they announced around sleep that was interesting was that was how limited the sleep tracking was initially or, or for now it's basically tells you when you how long you slept so when you went to bed when you woke up and um, and that is essentially oh and the consistency of your your sleep and in terms of your movement patterns but there's with the this sensor technology you can do a lot more um, a, a lot more detailed sleep analysis and sleep tracking with these devices so devices like whoop and aura and others do more sleep staging sleep quality um, sleep scoring that kind of stuff but apple specifically did not announce that but i'm sure you'll see it in mm -hmm. in future probably the near future as they get now they have the your heart rate, your activity, and your SpO2 in um, in the context of your sleep, and at that point, then you're going to start seeing um, more advanced sleep metrics, more more insights out of uh, out of these devices. They are going to have to figure out the the battery life issue as a um, uh, to get more people mm -hmm. wearing it while they sleep. Um, uh, just because of the limitations around that right now, but um, I, I'm certain that is something they are actively working on. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine so too. I actually just bought a Whoop, so I won't just be an Apple guy. I'm gonna <laughs> try out another wearable. I feel like I'm gonna like run out of places on my body to be putting all these different gear, all these gadgets. But um, but I'm the reason I did it was because, you know, I I'm. I think this is going to be this, this whole like quantitative quantified self movement, I think is going to be such a big trend throughout the 2020s. Um, and we're really just getting started. I mean, it, in so many different ways, wearables are, they're finally finding their place in the market. And, and like we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, it, it feels like the biggest use case initially is going to be all centered around quantifying your bio, bio, like your biological, physiological readings. Um, and I'm curious to see like what other things you can do. And it seems like whoops kind of on the cutting edge with some of this stuff. But one thing I think uh, that I wanted to get your thoughts on when we had the conversation with Brett Bivens, uh, the last time you were on, we talked a lot about Apple health as sort of this giant repository of data. And one of the interesting lines of discussion that we had throughout that is like, Will Apple play nice with other wearable companies out there, both hardware and software, um, or are they going to uh, sort of treat it as if it's like this winner-take-all market? And I think we kind of both, you know, prior to 
recording, we were talking a little bit about Fitness Plus. And I think this is really interesting for a few different reasons. Um, I mean, on the surface, you can look at it and you can say, wow, that's really a shot across the bow at, at somebody like a Peloton, right? This idea where you get, uh, it's another subscription, $10 a month or however much you, there's bundles now too, with all kinds of, you know, Apple TV and Apple news and all these different services that they're rolling out. Um, but the idea with fitness plus is that, you know, in conjunction with your wearable, you can like stream fitness classes to your iPad or your Apple TV or to your iPhone. And I think one of the most interesting aspects to this is that it has, um, I'm almost imagining you have to have an Apple watch to do some of this stuff or, or at least it's going to optimize it because it has the readout in real time on the screen. And I look at this and I say, that is the type of feature that I think is extremely compelling to people. And, and again, if you only have, uh, you know, you have all these different, like, you have the mirror, you have Peloton, you have all kinds of these new interactive uh, workout applications that are super computerized. Um, the missing ingredient, I think, for a lot of those is like, what's my body actually, how's my body responding to this workout? Like, I think that's going to be for fitness, fitness nuts in particular. I think they're going to be really intrigued of like real time, like how many cardio or how, how many calories am I burning and, and is much of a robust output as they can have in terms of how their body's responding to the workout that they're doing. And so I look at this and it kind of goes off of what you were saying about sleep, where it's like, um, in a way, I, I almost look at this as, you know, Apple rolling out kind of these introductory, um, like you can get a base bare bones experience if you use Fitness Plus or if you get the sleep tracker. But I kind of feel like where this is going, though, is that it's going to dramatically expand the market because you're going to get a lot of people that they're going to get this experience. And a Peloton, for example, um, with their newest bike, they have a, uh, a gym kit integration. So you actually will be able to sync your Apple watch onto there. And so I think that where we might end up seeing this go is that rather than really being a competitor with somebody like an, a Peloton, um, I kind of think that where the Apple watch really fits in with a company like that is it's like a addition, you know, it's like you can add your Apple watch to the Peloton experience in the same way that with fitness plus you can get this overlay with your, you know, how many rings you've closed and active calories and what my blood oxygenation looks like um, all these different metrics overlaid on top of my Peloton ride it seems like that's going to be really, really intriguing to these people. So for me, I'm, I'm not sure if I view Fitness Plus as as a competitor as much as I look at it as a way that Apple is trying to introduce more people to here is how you can sort of overlay the wearable data on top of a workout. And I think that's going to be really compelling to a lot of people. And I'll be curious to see if that makes its way into like these third-party integrations that seem to be on the on the roadmap as well. So what are your thoughts on fitness plus and how it relates to the, you know, the third party economy, but also with, you know, the wearables that Apple has. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's um, it, it is not a threat to Peloton at all. In fact, it is, that's probably one of the best things that could have happened to Peloton 
uh, other than a pandemic, uh, which obviously helped their business quite <laughs> right. a bit. Um, I, I say that only half jokingly. If there yeah. is a silver lining or any silver linings of the pandemic, that may be one of them. Mm-hmm. But um, what, so I see that as drastically expanding the market. Look at look at what the um, introduction of the AirPods did to the hearables market. It's it drastically drastically expanded. It was huge growth for Jabra and Bose and others as um as apple and hearing aids and hearing aids as well yeah exactly so this is very good for peloton and mirror and tonal and all of these companies because i agree they're more at the high end um and uh, they'll they'll feed all of that data back into apple health and and apple gets what it wants with uh, with being that that um health repository where I think it is extremely threatening, and not just uh, Fitness Plus, but just the, the broader trend of working out at home in general is uh, to the, the large gyms and any of the in-person workout um, facilities where I've seen numerous studies now that say somewhere between 30 and 50% of gym members have no plans to ever go back to a gym. Mm-hmm. They're going to work out at, at, at home. And it's driven by, uh, obviously, the pandemic was a big driver behind it, but it's been enabled by capabilities of companies like Peloton and Mirror and Tonal and, of course, now um, Fitness Plus. And so there, there's that element of it, but it's also an element of what these companies are doing is they're moving towards becoming using wearable devices and sensor technology. And of course the analytics that, that go on top of that to really demonstrate how that workout or that service or that capability is impacting an individual's fitness and health. So you can, you, you can point to, okay, I did uh, these 10 workouts over this month and my resting heart rate dropped and my activity level went up and uh, you've got metrics now to show, okay, the, the, what I'm paying for a Peloton is worth it because look at all these different metrics that are improving. And that's not possible without uh, certainly the wearable devices and the sensor technology to go along with the, the fitness services. And, and, and that's not something that historically gym chains or you know many of the workout the in-person workout um, businesses have ever thought about or really ever focused on i guess i should say is um is demonstrating the impact that they're having on their members and that's something that these at-home workout uh services and products are are really um really moving towards and and excelling in that is that is an incredible point that you just made, and you're right because you're like by making the data something that is uh, directly tied to the work that you've put in. Again, it goes to the quantified self idea. Is, is like when you can really start to break down and say, "Look, you did ten Peloton rides this month." Plus you, and, and so, you know, that was synced to your Apple health data or wherever that's residing. Um, I kind of think that down the line, like we're going to get into a whole, like another big theme of this. And I don't know how exactly it's going to manifest itself in the market, but it's going to be about what you eat. You know, it's going to be, I, I don't know exactly how that's going to get registered, but again, I think that it's going to be this idea of for so long we've been, um, 
you know, you're told things like you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. Um, this is healthy for you, but we know that we're all like so different. And so I really, again, I, I keep re-harping on this, but I think that one of the big things across this next decade, as we become more enabled through things like wearables, the sensors, the data science that makes sense of all this data, um, the repository, which holds all this data, the integrations of how the data can you know, flow in different directions, um, I think that it's ultimately going to just kind of come down to the same conclusion, which is we're going to just be a whole whole lot more intelligent about the way our bodies respond to uh, all the different things that we put our bodies through, the way that we sleep, the way that we eat, the way that we work out. Um, and so people, I think, are going to become, they're going to become obsessed with this. I think there will be a subset of the population that will become absolutely obsessed with this in the same way that we always have people that are obsessed with diets and exercise and everything, um, CrossFit, you name it, you know, these different things where um, it's, I, I, I just think that there's such a massive opportunity that's really, we're on the, the very early stages of, and I think that this whole idea of, you know, each year in the same way that we've been conditioned to expect a new iPhone with all the greatest innovation around cameras and stuff like that, we should expect the same sort of trajectory, but it's all going to be built around health. It's all going to be built around these new types of insights that you can capture and allowing for a more robust data set that you can ultimately glean more types of insight from. Couldn't agree more. Very well said. <laughs> so let me just ask you as we wrap up here, um, if you're looking through your crystal ball, where else is the low hanging fruit right now? I hate to use that term. I know it's like the most jargony term, but where is like the things that you think are, um, I mean, I feel like if I would have asked you last year, this probably would have been the, one of the things that you would have cited. I think actually you did in one of the different conversations we've had previously. Um, but I'm just curious, like what else should we kind of should be on the radar, um, whether it be from a software standpoint or a hardware standpoint? Um, what are some of those things that are more or less breakthrough innovations that are happening that are actually now um, feasible to put into a consumer device? Yeah. So, um, without giving away too many of the secrets. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I can't go too far down that, uh, down that path, but I can say in general, um, where this is going is, and, and you're starting to see early signs of this with now, um, some of this more advanced sensor technology, but the, the wearable sensor technology providing deeper insights into how your body is responding to whatever you're, you're putting it through. And so that means more, um, more advanced metrics and, and more of, uh, and when I say advanced, I mean more uh, deeper insights from a, from a clinical or a medical perspective on your true health and fitness level. And so that's going to, that's going to come from a variety of different sensor technology, but also pulling more metrics and more yeah. insights out of, out of the, the, um, the, the raw sensor data that's coming into these devices today. And so you take that raw sensor data and uh, start applying applying machine learning and advanced AI techniques to the large data sets that are out there. So you, you now look at, there's hundreds of millions of wearable and hearable devices out in, in the marketplace mm -hmm. today, still in use. 
and that that number is continuing to increase. And so all of that data coming in and starting to apply machine learning techniques, frankly, we don't know all of what we're going to find, but we're going to, you're starting to see this advancement towards um, the consumer wearable devices starting to pick off different use cases and enable um, advanced insights into health and medical conditions that have never been possible before. And that's that mm -hmm. combination of sensor technology across a broad scale of the population with um, machine learning applied to the sensor data that's coming in. And I think you'll start to see that. So uh, some examples um, in particular, so um, respiratory conditions will be a big area of advancement yeah. and um, cardiovascular conditions, and then also um, uh, neurological conditions as well. So, um, so things like hmm. um, uh, um, uh, Parkinson's and um, and other uh, neurological conditions on the uh, along those lines, that um, where you'll start to see more and more advancements. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, FDA cleared wearable devices. In other cases, more like SPO2, that's just more of a, a general wellness type application. But more and more, you'll start to see the that line blurring between a consumer device, quote unquote, and a, and a true medical device. I love it. I think that's such good act. Uh, applications that you outlined there, I would agree with you. I, you know, one of the things that I find really interesting about the hearing aid market in particular is this idea of, you know, capturing um, like what Starkey's doing around not only the, you know, like Livio AI obviously has some of the accelerometer and the gyroscope data, but the cognition data they have, I think is a really interesting precursor of what could come, you know, around um, dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, yep. um, effects of the mind that, um, you know, I would love to see some innovation around. So I agree with you. I'm, I'm so bullish on this whole space. I love to see um, the movement that we're seeing now, because I think that the more competition, the better. I think it's just going to fuel um, more and more types of uses. And for me, like we said at the beginning of the conversation, you know, for a long time, wearables have been pigeonholed into like glorified, uh, you know, <laughs> like step counters. And, right. and now we're really starting to see them uh, graduate into, you know, kind of their, they're graduating into their own. Um, they're, you know, like off to college. <laughs> so uh, I think it's cool. And I'm really excited to watch this whole thing progress. So thanks so much for coming on, really breaking down, you know, what we've just seen Apple debut. And, and like you said, a, a number of other wearable manufacturers have already had, um, but sort of this new theme around blood oxygenation, what we can expect from it and um, how it might ultimately evolve. So Ryan, I really appreciate you coming on today. Thanks for everybody who tuned in here to the end and we will chat with you next time. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Future Ear Radio. For more content like this, just head over to futureear.co where you can read all the articles that I've been writing these past few years on the worlds of voice technology and hearables and how the two are beginning to intersect. Thanks for tuning in and I'll chat with you next time.